What is going on, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 57 of RizzoCast. I'm Steven Risotto, and we are joined today with a man who played in parts of 12 seasons as a big league reliever for the Padres, Astros, White Sox, Giants, Braves, Brewers, not in order, uh, and now works with the Water Mission, providing, uh, which works to provide access to safe water in developing countries and disaster areas. Scott, how you doing? I'm doing well, Stephen. I appreciate you having me on your show. <laughs> well, I appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, I know you're a busy guy with everything going on, um, but the 2021 baseball season is underway, of course. Are you still watching? Are you still keeping up with everything that's going on? Like, kind of, what, What's kind of your, your status right now with, with baseball? You know, baseball for me, I mean, I like to stay in touch with what's going on. Um, I read the news pretty much every day. Uh, still have a handful of guys, buddies that are playing. Most of them are coaching or managing, but um, it's nice to just, you know, keep your thumb on the pulse. But I usually don't sit down and actually watch baseball. I'll watch highlights or I'll have a game on, you know, in the background. It's more of a comforting thing for me than anything. Uh, I've, I've watched my fair share of games. And so uh, I, I usually wait till playoffs. October is when I watch baseball. So October is when you put it in full gear. What teams are you kind of keeping up with? If uh, kind of any of the ones that you still uh, that you played for, excuse me, that you played for, or do you kind of just pick and choose whatever game is happening at that time? Well, I've got seven to choose from that I played with. Um, yeah, but I I really you know have my eye on the Padres this year. That's who I played with the longest, and they seem to have an exciting young team with a lot of talent. Um, I think that they could do a lot of great things. I've, I've still got some buddies on the Cardinals, and so I, I keep an eye on them as well. But um, I'm just kind of a baseball fan in general. I don't really have a favorite team. So you're a reliever, came out of a lot of bullpens in your time. As a reliever yourself, you look at these bullpens, Scott, 10 years removed. What are you thinking when you watch these bullpens? Because, I mean, there's guys coming out throwing – you know, 97 consistently, every guy comes out throwing 97 with like a 92 mile an hour slider and another pitch and another pitch. It's crazy. So what are you thinking when you watch these bullpens? Yeah, it's pretty impressive. Um, I'm thinking, you know, back in my day, you know, I'm going to talk like one of the old washed up <laughs> has-beens, but, um, you know, 95 was pretty special. And nowadays, you know, 95 barely gets you in the door. Uh, like you say, everybody's throwing 100. Um, you know, it's, it's pretty impressive. I think the other thing to remember is that I had a pitching coach that once used to say, you know, big league hitters can time a rocket ship. I mean, they're good enough that they're going to, they're going to figure it out. So it's more to me about, uh, how you change speeds, how you locate the ball, how you execute, uh, especially your secondary and, and tertiary pitches in key situations, so what I love is, is watching guys in those situations where I used to come in in the seventh and eighth innings with a game on the line, runners on base, you know, one, maybe two outs, and, um, and really having to, to bear down and, and thrive in those pressure situations. Yeah, for sure. And so is baseball in a better place now than it was when you played in the 2000s? I know you kind of went through the, the era of, you know, big hitters, but those guys all hit for average too, you know, and I know batting average has kind of been devalued, but you know, now we see the true, the three true outcomes with the walk, the home run, the strikeout. Uh, 
as a whole, is baseball in a better place now with talent or was it, you know, or has it kind of taken a step back? What do you think? You know, you know, I think the game is, is always going to evolve. And I think that's a credit to the game that it can survive, um, you know, different eras. Uh, you know, you hear about the dead ball era. You hear about the era of the pitcher, uh, the home run era, the steroid era. Um, I think there's some great young talent right now. It's exciting. I mean, I was having that conversation just the other day when you look at guys like, you know, Acuna, Tatis, of course, Trout, um, you know, Harper. I mean, there's some exciting uh, guys playing baseball right now. And, and honestly, I, I wouldn't know, you know, probably half of the guys that are, are out there, you know, really developing and growing, having great seasons. But, um, but I'm confident that the game is going to survive any era, um, it's it's going to be a little bit different. I think it's unfair to compare from one era to the next. You know, if guys would have uh, been able to survive or thrive in this era versus that, um, I think everybody does what they need to do to adapt and survive in whatever environment that they're in. And I think that's what makes elite athletes. I think that um, that all of these guys, you know, myself included, had to to figure it out pretty quickly how to adapt and adjust and be successful and, and then, you know, duplicate and replicate. Um, and, you know, if you don't, you're going to be gone pretty quick. So, you know, all of these guys are, are certainly, um, you know, thriving and, and doing things that they have to do in their own environment. Um, the game is incredibly fast. You know, sometimes the further away you get from the game, you feel like it, it slows down, but, um, when you get right up to it and even in the game, you realize how fast of a game, how fast pace it is. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's still fun for me to watch, fun to see different things happening. The thing I, I'm asking myself is when are guys, when are hitters going to start adjusting to the shift? Because it just seems like, you know, there's, there's a shift on, they're giving up an entire side of the, the field. And, um, you know, I think good hitters will make, adjustments and hit to the other side of the field and force the the fielders back to play them a little bit more balanced. But in a lot of cases, I don't see that happening. So I'm just wondering, you know, how long this is going to last. Oh, we've asked that question for years. So I guess, I guess we'll see before it gets, maybe it gets banned. Who knows? Um, so um, did you see the discussion? And I, I just thought of this just now. Did you see the discussion about possibly moving the mound back to 61 feet six inches because i feel like all these rules are you know benefiting the hitter and there's no rules at all benefiting the pitcher because if you think about it historically pitchers had a great season in 1968 and what do they do they lowered the mound so every time you know pitchers dominate it's always blamed on the pitchers and the pitchers get the brunt of it with new rules that don't benefit them. So what do you think about like the possibility of a mound being moved back, even a foot? I would definitely not be in favor of that. Um, I don't think that, you know, what last year or two years ago, I guess it was two years ago because last year was a shortened season, but we set the record for home runs and we, we broke the record like in mid September with still a half a month to play. <laughs> so I don't, I don't think you're seeing an unfair advantage by any means on behalf of the pitcher. And, you know, again, what I, the comment I just made, the fact that that baseball has survived, you know, since Abner Doubleday, you know, back in the 1870s or whatever it was, um, and the great thing about it is the dimensions have, you know, stayed, stayed the same for the most part. I don't, I don't know that there ever was a specified height that the mound had to 
to be. And I even noticed going from uh, ballpark to ballpark, I mean, there was noticeable differences sometimes in the height of the mound. Um, you went to Pro Player Stadium down in Miami. It felt like that thing was a foot and a half tall. And then you go to Cincinnati and it felt like it was six inches tall. So I know they say that they, they had uh, specifications that they followed on the height, but uh, it seemed like it, it varied a lot. But the, as far as the distance to the plate, you know, that's always been the same. And I, I think it's exactly equidistant to from home to second. So are you going to, are you going to move second base back too? I mean, you, you can't go messing with the dimensions of the game. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Um, so Scott Linebrink, healthy Scott Linebrink, in his prime, would you be able to compete? And I know you mentioned that <laughs> you mentioned that, you know, good players can adjust to, you know, any era because they just figure out a way to do it. But healthy Scott Linebrink in a big league bullpen, would you be able to get outs today? Well, not um, – yeah, I mean, if you were to, to take myself from, let's say, 15 years ago, 10 yeah. years ago – and, and Not now. Today, yeah, I, <laughs> I couldn't right now, mainly because I had shoulder surgery about three months ago. But, um, but yeah, I, I think I could, I could figure something out. <laughs> yeah, good answer. So let's get into your career a little bit real quick. Um, grew up in Austin, Texas. We could notice the, the draw there, the southern draw. Um, Drafted in the second round out of Texas State by the Giants in 1997. Um, I've heard so many stories about how guys find out that they get drafted, and it's always interesting. And they usually find out after a college game or something. And now I guess you watch it on TV, and guys are having big parties uh, with all their family around. So how did you kind of find out that you were drafted in the second round? Yeah, well, this this is how far I go back. This was before the days of cell phones. And so um, I had heard anything from first round to 15th round. And, you know, who knows, something might happen. We slipped through. We don't even get drafted the first day, you know, because the draft lasted multiple days, at least two. So I didn't even want to be sitting around waiting, you know, and what if the call doesn't come in right away? What if we wait all afternoon? What if we don't even get a call the first day? I didn't want to do that. So I told my buddies, I said, we're going to go play golf. And so uh, we went out and played golf. And I think uh, we, we made the first, the turn after the first nine. And I said, man, you know, I'm just, I'm going to call home and just see if anything's happened. Cause obviously it was on the front of my mind. So I called and my mom was just screaming in the other end of the phone. She's like, you know, you, you're probably the hundredth person to know that you got drafted. <laughs> But um, I got drafted in the second round by the Giants. And, of course, it was a huge, um, huge deal. You know, me and my buddies celebrated out there on the golf course. And um, I don't I don't even think I remember, you know, playing the back nine. But then, you know, coming home, everybody was coming over to the house. There was an impromptu party, um, you know, just a lot of people from my childhood and, and congratulations and people just, you know, the signs up in the yard. I mean, it was just a blast. And it was it was really cool to, you know, celebrate with a lot of the people that, that helped get me there too, coaches and of course my parents and friends. Uh, so that was an exciting time. And then we had a, an all out party like a week later, you know, an official party. And then um, I guess about two weeks later, I was off um, to my first minor league city. So you started off at a, as a starting pitcher at the minor league level. We see the adjustment all the time now with guys that started off as starting pitchers and moved to the bullpen. So you made that move. And I talked to Russ Ortiz who kind of had it the other way. He started off as, 
a, uh, a, a closer in Oklahoma and then transitioned into the rotation. How tough is that move uh, mentally kind of getting moved out of the rotation as a young player and, and getting into more uh, of a bullpen role? Well, I think it really depends on the individual, um, how, you know, how you're built, how, what your makeup looks like. For me, I couldn't stand the, the downtime in between the starts. And even in college as a starter, you know, you're coming in as a late inning guy, usually um, in those midweek games, and then you're starting on the weekends. Um, so, you know, there was always an opportunity to be in a game in the, in the pro, in the, in professional baseball, you know, you're, you're on a regimented schedule and, and you're pitching every fifth day. You got those four days in between. And, you know, especially if you had a bad start, it was really hard to wait four or five days until you got to that next start. So I think I was more suited for the bullpen. And it was really um, something that I gravitated into because of the shoulder injuries that I had had. They were trying to limit my innings. Um, but it ended up being a really good fit because I love the idea of being out there every night, having a chance to get in the game. If you do have a bad game, Hey, you know, brush it off. You'll be, up, you'll be back out there the next night. So, um, I think I was well suited for that. And I just, I love strapping it on every night and being out there. A hundred percent agree. Cause I made the move too in high school. I was a starting pitcher and I, I, uh, ended up moving to the bullpen my, my junior year and, you know, it goes from them telling you that you're, you're on Tuesday. They tell you on Tuesday, hey, you're starting Thursday, and then you got to deal with it through class. And it's on your mind for, for a few days, and it, it definitely could take a toll. Um, so behind the scenes stuff here, you were traded a few times. And how does that process actually work to, you know, explain it to someone like me who's kind of outside the loop on this kind of stuff? What is the process of getting traded? Is it like a gut punch? Is it, you know, hey, new beginnings, let's let's get off to a fresh start. How do you find out, and uh, how does the process work? Well, each trade is different, I would say. I mean, I think I was traded three times, and um, in some cases, I was really excited about the trade. It was a chance the first time I got traded to go play, go from San Francisco to the Astros, a team that I grew up rooting for. Um you know, so I was excited about that one. Um, the, the second trade, I was less than excited because I was with a team, San Diego, that I had been with for five years and really established myself. My wife and I had, you know, put down some roots. Um, we were to have our first child, which created some logistical challenges. Um, and going to a place like Milwaukee, where, you know, it was like my wife even asked, you know, I don't even know what state Milwaukee's in. So <laughs> it's, uh, and, you know, you're all of a sudden you're one day you're living in Southern California, the next day you're living in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So, and you're trying to find housing and, you know, figure all this out with a new baby. So uh, that was tough. And, you know, that makes you realize that, that you need a good supporting staff around you to, to make sure that you're taking care of all that home stuff. And then on top of that, you know, you're worried about fitting in with a new team. What's my role? Uh, your routine often gets disrupted because you've got a different weight room, a different training room, different training staff. Um, it's just a lot of stuff to get used to, especially in the middle of the season. The third trade was in the off season. So I had the benefit of coming in to spring training and um, and getting to know the guys, you know, it was it was just like signing with a new team and um, and being there from the beginning. 
Um, and that was to Atlanta. So I really enjoyed my time in Atlanta. We had a great team that year. A uh, lot of strong relationships, guys that I still keep in touch with today. So uh, really, it just it depends, I guess I'd have to say, because um, some of those trades uh, bring about new beginnings and you're excited. And some of them are you know, kind of a departure from from what you're most comfortable with. But I would say in any case, you know, the fact that you are being traded is always a good thing because somebody wants you. Yeah, hundred percent. Somebody, I can't imagine, you know, going anywhere from San Diego and, you know, cause San Diego is such a nice town. It's such a great weather. Um, so that must've been a weird transition going to Milwaukee. Uh, what about getting called up and called back down? This is a struggle that a lot of players early in their careers have uh, with options. And we hear all the time about, Oh, he's got an option left. We could send him down getting shifted back and forth from AAA in the big leagues must be like the toughest thing I'd imagine on a young player with housing and finding an apartment. And it, I asked Chris Shaw, who is a former giants prospect this. And he said that he rented an apartment with four guys and three uh, and all four of them got called up and he was the only one left in the apartment. So, um, you know, struggles like that often come out of something like this. So what was it like for you kind of getting shifted up and down, up and down at the beginning of your career? Yeah, it's, it definitely plays a toll on your psyche. And, um, you know, in some cases you get called up and, and sent back down just because that's the nature of the beast. That's the numbers game with the roster. You mentioned the options, uh, guys that have options, you know, are, it's much easier to move them up and down. You don't have to risk losing them to the waiver wire. So, you know, and it's explained, uh, like that. And, you know, I would say early on, I was just glad to get the opportunity to be called up. And so going back down, it was almost like, okay, I can go back to where it's comfortable. There's not all this like craziness and 40,000 people every night. I mean, I can just relax and go play minor league ball. Now, you know, once you get called up a couple of times, you realize that, Hey, riding on the, the chartered planes are a whole lot better than the buses and the cities are a lot bigger uh, up in the big leagues versus the minor leagues. And there's a whole lot of perks. So, um, so yeah, you definitely want to get back up there. Um, and, and I think for a little while, you know, that really became my focus is I got to do whatever I can to get back up to the big leagues and I don't want to be stuck down here. Um, and, you know, you can really start to, it can affect your performance when you start to look at, well, you know, it's just a minor league game or it's just the, the minor leagues, um, you know, and, and you kind of take a different approach versus, hey, this is baseball. I've got to excel at this level, just like I do at the big league level. I've got a team that is depending on me here, just like they are up there. Um, and so you really can't, you know, look at it as like a second class job. I mean, this is your job. You got to you got to remember uh, why you're here. You're here to get better. You're here to develop and you're here to get called up and go to the next level. So, um, you know, it, it definitely was something that, that I had to had to learn, um, had to deal with. And, and really, I think in the end, it just developed a lot of mental fortitude and, and making sure that that I was going to be able to handle some of the other challenges that, that would come with the big league job too back to playing in san diego a big part of their bullpen for for a few years there what kind of clicked once you got there because that was kind of your spot where you kind of broke out in a way 
It was. I, I think a lot of it came with opportunity, you know, just getting a chance to go out there. Um, <clears throat> it was a team that wasn't – we were at or near the bottom of the division, so not a whole lot of expectations. San Diego back then was a, a much smaller market, and it was really just a place where I could go out and, and play. Um, I think if I had, you know, come into the league – you know, and San Francisco was a decent size, um, Houston, a little bit bigger. Um, but, you know, going, I, I couldn't imagine starting in like a, a Yankees or, you know, New York or Chicago uh, type environment. Um, but I kind of had to, to ease my way into it. I had to convince myself that I had what it, it takes to, to compete at that level. And so getting a chance to do that in San Diego, I think really, um, allowed me to, to just get reps, go out there and, and see what I needed to do to, to be successful. I had the benefit of being around some great bullpen guys like Trevor Hoffman and Rod Beck, who taught me a lot about the approach to the game, the mental side of the game. Um, they were always asking me questions, and I was always afraid of not having an answer. So it, it kept me thinking about you know, hey, what do I do in this situation? Or why would I throw that pitch here? What am I trying to accomplish? Um, so, yeah, I think it was a great learning opportunity for me. And, uh, and again, just a chance to, to really sink in and say, okay, I belong here. I can, I can do this. Um, and then, of course, San Diego, the next year, we got the new stadium. So we had more fans, you know, new uniform. It just felt like it was uh, almost like going from minor leagues to the big leagues. Um, and then, you know, I think that prepared me well for when I played in Chicago, which was a much bigger uh, stage or media um, environment than it was in San Diego. Yeah, Trevor Hoffman is he was the guy that was the all time saves leader, of course, before Mariano Rivera. And you said you learned a lot. He asked you questions. What were some of the things you admired and, and learned from from Hoffman watching him? Well, uh, I don't think anybody has greater passion for the game and just his craft than Trevor did. Um, he was always working, always improving himself. Um, very meticulous about his routine and everything that he did had a reason. There was nothing done out of circumstance. There was nothing done just, you know, because he wanted to do it. There was always a reason for why he did it. Um, and, from a mental side too, um, you know, he would talk about, you know, pushing aside the bad thoughts. Um, he would do things, you know, physically to remind himself that, you know, that's a bad thought and any bad thought doesn't have any place here. It's counterproductive to what I'm trying to do. So I'm, I'm going to get rid of it. Um, and, and he was incredibly focused, you know, he would go out there and, and he just, he, there was no wasted energy. So even playing catch, there was a purpose to playing catch. There was a purpose to warming up. There was a purpose to his, um, his workout, his running. Um, he was always challenging himself. I remember early on, we would go for runs and, um, and he loved to, you know, go out. We would always take cab money and we would just, you know, run in one direction and then we'd catch a cab and we'd turn around and, and ride back. Cause he didn't want to run the same thing twice. He always wanted to see new things. So we would, you know, in Seattle, we'd run down to the wharf and, um, out in LA, we'd be, you know, running out around Dodger stadium, but everything was always a challenge. I remember, you know, at the end of the run, you know, we'd have the last, like, you know, whatever it was half a mile and he would be hollering out, you know, all right, it's two, two count, two outs. 
got to run on third, got to make this pitch, you know, and he's putting him ourselves in a game situation when we're tired, when we're ready to quit. And he's, you know, picking up the pace. And, and what I realized now that he was doing was, you know, he was making me realize that when, when it feels like your tank is empty, when it feels like you're done, you've got a lot more to give. And that's exactly when you need to, to pick it up and take it up a, a notch up another level in order to get that that last out so you know that that served well out there at seven o'clock when the big lights came on too yeah one of the best change-ups in the history of baseball for sure uh and your manager was a guy that just retired last year a hall of famer bruce bochi um i mean i don't think anybody i've ever heard interview say a bad thing about him i mean the guy is just a true true legend of the game what was what were kind of your memories and thoughts for uh you know, playing for Bruce. Yeah. Boach was awesome. Um, you know, he just, a like a big grizzly bear and, you know, he had like, uh, he was real quiet. I remember the, the first, you know, few months that I played for him, I didn't even know if he knew my name or if he liked me. I mean, he already said a word to me. Um, but he was kind of one of those guys that you just really aimed to please. And, uh, you know, the other thing too, that I realized that the more I played for him is that, he was a good leader because he always wanted to put people in a position to succeed. And he knew what everybody's strength was. And so, you know, I, I saw him just get really upset um, and lament with players, you know, whenever they didn't do well. I mean, he, he wasn't mad at them for, for not executing or not making a pitch or not getting a, a hit in a key situation. You know, he felt for them because he was a player himself. Uh, he was a catcher. I mean, he was a grinder. He he sat in that same seat that we did, and he knew how hard the game was, and um, and he honestly wanted to see everybody succeed. And so when you've got a guy like that that you know cares about you as a person and, and wants you to succeed, there's nothing you won't do for him. And uh, and so I felt that way about Boach, and and I would put Boach right up there with with my favorites. Did you ever call him Bruce? Or was it just solely Boach? I think it was always Boach. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've never, um, I, I called him Bruce earlier and I, I just realized, God, does anybody call him that? <laughs> so, so it's Boach. Yeah. Boach, you know, everybody knows he had like a size eight and a half head, might have been eight and three quarters. I mean, just a giant head. He's just a big man in general. But um, I still remember being out there. I loved the Philly Fanatic and I would always go out early to watch the Philly Fanatic and he would just crack me up. And, I was like the only guy in the dugout. Nobody else had come out yet. And so, you know, sometimes he'd see me over there and he would, you know, do stuff. And I remember one time Boach was out there with me and <laughs> he starts making fun of Boach and he's, you know, doing this skit where like his head is too big and he's like, you know, it's too heavy and it's weighing him down and he's falling over because his head's so big. And I was down at the end of the dugout, just horse laughing at this. <laughs> and Boach is just sitting there like with his hands on his hips, looking at me like, you kidding me? <laughs> I would have been laughing, but uh, he was—he was a guy that could laugh at himself too. So uh, you know, self-deprecating humor is always an admirable quality. Yeah, getting to watch him for you know 10, 11, 12 years in San Francisco, uh, we saw exactly what you're talking about with the bullpen, with the manipulation of of using guys in the right spot, and it got him three championships. So he did something right, and he's definitely heading for Cooperstown for sure. Um, so then after San Diego, you got the multi-year deal with the White Sox and a lot of people, a lot of players, you know, could 
hypothetically just relax after that, right? Um, is that the case or is there still a lot of motivation to kind of live up to the contract? Because there's there's one of two things you could do. You could either, you know, feel comfortable with the contract and relax and you know, maybe turn into a different person, or you could live up to that, you could try and live up to that contract and be afraid of, you know, people hating you for getting paid all that money and, you know, not coming through. So what was your mindset of having that multi-year deal? Well, one thing, you know, you have to remember is, um, you know, no matter what the money situation is, you know, you, uh, you have a job to do and your task um, is there regardless of whatever you're getting paid. So, you know, the the same drive that, that keeps us excelling and wanting to get to the major leagues keeps us wanting to stay in the major leagues. And I think that's just a product of, you know, hey, I can do something that only a handful of people in the world can do. And I want to continue to prove that I can do it. Um, and so regard, you know, the money is is really should be a byproduct. Um, and, you know, of course, there's things that come with the money that that might make it a little easier or, you know, you you start to feel that um, you can provide um, for a lot longer. There's a lot more certainties, not just for this year, but next year and for your kids and for the future. So that part of it is nice, the, the financial security. Um, but I would say, you know, for me, it probably had quite the opposite effect of what you're talking about that, you know, I never felt like I could relax. I felt like because I'm being paid more, because I'm being expected to perform in this you know, high, um, high impact role, um, that I, I need to, to produce. I mean, I'm obviously being expected to produce because they're paying me to. And so, um, sometimes living up to expectations can, can put you in a trap in itself. Um, I think for me, um, I'm a man of faith. And so, you know, when I talk about identity, uh, my identity comes not from the fact that I am a baseball player, but that I'm a child of God. And so uh, for me, you know, maintaining that focus was was critical um, for remembering, you know, what I'm out there to do. What is my purpose, uh, my overall purpose in life? And, and it's something I still think about to this day. Who's the best player that you've ever played with? That's a tough question. You've played with a lot of great, great talent. Who's the best one? With um, Jim Tomey. Mm. Jim I mean, Tomey. Why? Home runs. Uh, well, I mean, he's up there among the, the biggest home run hitters. Uh, played for 22 years. Um, one of the best guys that you will ever meet. I mean, just a humble guy. Um, probably will someday be a big league manager. Um, just just loves the game of baseball, but... Um, but beyond that, I mean, just a just a great person. I mean, loves to loves to give back, loves to use his platform to serve other people. And I just I mean, he was the one guy that that I would say, you know, when I think back to the guys that I got to play with, you know, wow, I'm I'm really proud that I got to be Jim Tomey's teammate. That's awesome. So shifting gears here, you have a few things over your back shoulder. Uh, so on. Uh, on your right side, you have a jersey there. It's, it looks like it's a Nolan Ryan jersey signed. Um, got three signatures on it. Who signed that? Oh, no, it's just one, um, but he wrote a little message. Oh, he wrote a uh, message. He lives, he, of course, he's a Texan. Um, he actually lives uh, pretty close to where I live. And so I've had the, the 
fantastic opportunity to, to hang out with him a few times, go to breakfast. Um, we actually spoke at the same engagement at Texas State at my old um, college, uh, which was a terrible idea because he spoke first and then I followed him. <laughs> like, how in the world do I follow Nolan Ryan? He's my childhood hero. So um, that was intimidating in itself. But, um, but yeah, uh, Nolan is the epitome of just the, uh, the power pitcher, you know, the high leg kick. I always tried to imitate it when I was a kid. And, um, I mean, just incredible what he was able to do. Pitched till he's 46 years old. Um, it's just, I don't, I don't think we will ever see another Nolan Ryan. Superhuman for sure. And what's on, what's on your left-hand shoulder? Tell us about that. So, yeah, this is actually a picture from a refugee camp and it's in Tanzania in Africa. And, after my playing career, I got involved with an organization called Water Mission, and this is who I work for now. I've worked for them for the last six years. So um, I would say my my two biggest employers are Major League Baseball and now Water Mission. So it's um, it's really been the focus of my life for the last uh, six years or, or more. I mean, we actually um, had a relationship with them before I went to work for them. Uh, but basically, this group is going around the world into impoverished communities, third world countries, and putting in water systems uh, for refugee areas, camps of tens, hundreds of thousands of people, um, rural communities that are outside of major population centers that don't have any kind of water or sanitation services. And so we're coming in and we're drilling wells and putting in pumps and distribution network so that uh, people can access water and I've had the the neat opportunity to travel around the world all over Latin America been to Africa now um, I'm going to be heading down to Peru this November to uh, to see a project down there and um, and I just enjoy you know taking people into the field and seeing the work uh, one because it's a, a found a, a fantastic way to give back um, if you want to talk about, you know, what, what are some basic needs of people? I mean, it doesn't get much more basic than water. And to be able to provide sustainable, reliable water for people uh, just has tremendous impacts on education and health and empowerment for women and children, uh, opportunities for youth. Uh, it, it just all flows from water. So uh, I'm really uh, grateful for this opportunity to do that. And, uh, and have invited several of my friends, uh, several guys that are in the game, um, and and they come on these trips, and it's it's really just a life changing experience once you get to go and see it. So this was something you were involved in when you were playing too. No, it, it actually uh, came after my playing career, um, and I was told about it by a good friend of mine, and and he suggested that I check him out, and we got involved for, uh, financially, um, which is good, but um, I would say the engagement really uh, took it to a new level whenever I, I went to on my first trip, which was to Haiti and, and saw what poverty looked like. And of course, living uh, in our world, but especially, you know, in a big league lifestyle, I mean, that's not even reality. And, and to think about the things that we take for granted, the things that, that we feel like we're entitled to, and you go to these other places and they don't have any of that. And they're very grateful even for the most basic things. Um, and it's taught me so much. It's taught me that, you know, if, if you're going to be grateful for the things that you have, 
um, you, you really realize that you're entitled to nothing. Um, and that, you know, we rejoice at the things that, that we have that are just, you know, the simplest things. But, um, but we also, I, I find that you start to ask yourself, well, why have I been given this? Um, why do I have this when someone on the other side of the world, you know, can't even feed their kids? Well, I think there's a calling to each one of us to be generous. And I think that's how, you know, we really find true joy in our lives is by giving to others and um, not on doing things for yourself. I mean, we, we often are fooled into the, the sense of belief that, you know, hey, if I could just buy this or if I could just have a bigger house or I could have a, you know, another car or vacation, you know, I'll, I'll be happy. But none of that stuff ever satisfies us. But, but man, when you give back to someone else and, and you know that you've made an impact in their life and a difference that they otherwise would not have had, I mean, there's, there's great joy in that. And uh, the saying is true. It's better to give than receive. So this is a loaded question, but I was just thinking that the, the, the most populized and the most well-known situation of, you know, lack of water or lack of good water in the United States uh, is Flint, Michigan. And, mm. you know, this is something that we've heard about for a while now. And so how is something like this fixed? How does the water mission, you know, help with this? What are some of the, uh, the options in Flint, Michigan? Yeah. Flint, Michigan is a tough case. Um, and it's a very unfortunate case because so many people, um, have been exploited in that situation. Um, really what that comes down to, and I don't want to get too political into this, uh, but it comes <laughs> down to bad, it's bad leadership is what mm -hmm. it is. Um, because the reason that they are in that that problem in the first place is because um, there was a change made to the water system that um, that some people knew was not going to be beneficial. Um, and unfortunately, it, it often impacts people um, of less economic means. And that's what happened in the case of Flint. Um, and you had, you know, people in power that were not looking out for the best interest of others. And, um, and that's very sad. It's sad to, to see good people, hardworking people taken advantage of like that. Um, so, you know, but that, that's a rare instance. I mean, a lot of times when you see a water crisis in the United States, it's because of a disaster, natural disaster. Um, but we have so many resources nearby that, you know, typically we can, we can pick up the, the slack for something, um, you know, pretty quickly. Um, but I tell you, you know, there's a, a place out west in the, the Navajo Nation, 40% uh, of their homes don't have water. And wow. uh, they've been hit very hard by COVID. And, um, and so we've been doing, um, looking at ways that maybe we can help out, out in that area. But, um, but yeah, there are pockets of, of places that are underserved. Um, and the thing about this water crisis is, the technology exists to help anybody. I mean, there's not, there's not a contaminant known to man that cannot be removed from water and make it safe to drink. Uh, we have the technology to do that. We have so much, um, so many ways that we can do that. Uh, really, it just comes down to, um, you know, resources. Can, can we involve enough people? Can we get enough resources together uh, to provide for people that, that can't really provide for themselves or don't have the means? Um, but they're, there are resources available to do that. We've just got to inspire, we've got to mobilize, and we've got to develop a plan and a strategy to get water to people, not just in places like Flint, Michigan, but all around the world. 
how has COVID impacted the organization? Because I know, you know, COVID has been the, the, the talk of 2020 and I guess early 2021 here. And I'm sure you've guys, you guys have had to make some changes with the way you do things. So how has kind of COVID impacted the organization with the water mission? Yeah, it's uh, in some ways it, it allowed us to trim some fat. And in other ways, it, it made us realize our strengths. Um, you know, the, the training and the hand washing that we do is so important. We do it in every project. We don't just provide water, but we teach people how to use water for healthy living. Um, and so we have started putting in hand washing stations in addition to our water projects. Um, we have had to, you know, make adjustments to the way that we mobilize in, in country. Um, we have country offices in nine different countries. So, you know, places like Mexico and Peru for a while, uh, we're only allowed to operate at about a 20% capacity. Um, places like Africa did not get hit as hard as what we saw in China and Europe and the United States. So um, luckily for that, you know, we're, we're very grateful that that wasn't as big of an issue as it could have been. Um, but, you know, all of the social distancing and the things we, we still practice and maintain, but, uh, but it just goes to show that, you know, safe water is a huge need and, you know, you can't wash your hands if you don't have safe water. Um, and I keep saying safe water, you know, we call water that, that is free of contaminants that has no chance to make you sick. Uh, there's nothing in that. It would meet U.S. drinking water standards. That's, that's what we call safe water. That's great stuff. And I think it's very inspirational to people that want to get involved. Again, it's the water mission. Uh, and you have a new podcast, a uh, new podcast that uh, you just started. So kind of what's, tell me about that, about that venture. Yeah. So it, it's partly uh, come out of my work with water mission and um, really what it was all about was giving guys that, that I used to play with and guys that are still in the game today um, an opportunity to talk about the things that they're truly passionate about. We all love to hear about the story behind athletes. You know, what do they look like off the field? What are the things that they're involved in? Um, so I just really want to create a forum where they can talk about some of those things. And, and I truly believe, I mean, I, I believe in this generosity thing. I believe in giving and I believe that, you know, being involved in something bigger than yourself is the answer to, um, you know, a lot of narcissistic behavior, a lot of, you know, guys that get caught up in depression and self-destructive behavior, uh, because that is unfortunately the case for a lot of guys after the game. And so I feel like, you know, getting involved in some of these things where we can go out and help other people is probably one of the best remedies um, for, for some of the, the destructive behavior. So I, I find it to be inspiring for myself to hear these guys talk about what what really motivates them and how they want to help people. And I hope that it motivates others too. The podcast is called get in the game. And so really it's talking about what it means to live a life of service. And I mentioned my faith earlier. Um, my faith is, is something that is, is very important to me. It's something that, that teaches me that, you know, uh, to whom much has been given much is expected. And so uh, this is a chance to talk about, you know, how we, uh, we, myself and, and other uh, ballplayers are, are giving back and we tell some baseball stories too. You know, there's some, some fun banter at the beginning and, and um, you know, the, the conversations have been really rewarding for me, but I think a lot of people will, will uh, latch on to them as well. 
And you can get the podcast anywhere, Apple, Spotify. Just go to Get In The Game or search my name. Yeah, talk about how to how to start a podcast. I mean, your first four guests, Dodgers manager Dave Roberts, former uh, left-hander for the Yankees, Andy Pettit, Trevor Hoffman, and Jim Tomey. So that's a way to start. So congrats on that. Congrats on that endeavor. Congrats on the water mission. And uh, congrats, of course, on a great big league career. Scott Linebrink, thank you so much for joining us, and I appreciate the time. Thank you, Stephen, and way to go with your podcast. I mean, hey, how to start a podcast. All you need is a microphone and uh, some guys on your on your uh, contact list and just call them up, right? So, 100%, 100%. I appreciate the time, Scott. Uh, you guys can follow yeah. us on Twitter at RizzoCast, um, Twitter and Instagram at RizzoCast, and, of course, uh, on Apple, Spotify, um, and everywhere else, YouTube, everywhere else you find your podcast. And uh, you could have it right there on the uh, on your library next to Get in the Game with uh, Scott Linebrink. So get that done, everybody. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you guys for watching and have a great day.